Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of our annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. My guest for today's episode is Shana Lambert, and here she is to introduce herself. I'm Shana Lambert. And I'm a fiction writer, and uh, I write short stories and I write novels. So I've written two books of short stories and, and two novels, and I'm now working on another novel and also sort of slowly collecting another book of short stories. I grew up in Horseshoe Bay. I think that's an important part of my identity. Growing up in um, House Sound, my dad had a little wooden boat. That was important to me. I have memories of kind of scudding across to you know the different islands and then coming home with my family and yeah so I think of myself as a coastal writer and um, my next novel has a lot more to do with the coast. I asked Shana if she could be a character from any book, poem, movie, picture book, etc. who she would be and why. She reflected on some of the answers she'd heard on other episodes and the character she mentioned is one that's near and dear to my heart. Here's what she said. Mm. Jeepers Creepers. Um, um, I think it's tricky because, I mean, like, as, as Annabelle Lyons said, as a fiction writer, you read a lot of dark stuff. I mean, who wants to be one of Laurie Moore's characters, you know, or um, some of these other, you know, difficult, complex characters like Alice Munro's characters? I, I feel drawn to them, but I don't necessarily want to take up their life. So I think I'd like to be Elizabeth. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice because she's smart and I love how when Darcy insults her at the beginning of the book she thinks it's funny and at first she's kind of scalded and then she turns it into a joke and um, she amuses her friends with that and I just think that's such a great way to be in the world I'd like to be more like that myself I'd like to not take offense and be able to be kind of lightly ironical the way Jane Austen's characters can be. Shana's book, Petra, won the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. At our gala in September, Shana was able to celebrate the win with her mom, Barbara Lambert, who was a finalist for the 2001 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize for her book, A Message for Mr. Lazarus. Barbara passed away this fall. In our interview, Shana talks about her family and how her mom's writing reflected their family's history. Shana starts our conversation with a reading from Petra. The book is told from the point of view of Manfred Schwartz, who is a kind of almost like a fictional alter ego. And um, he's 33 years old. He's very much in love with Petra Kelly. And she, meanwhile, is in in love with this uh, general, this um, ex-NATO general. So there's a a triangular love affair, but they're all very immersed in politics. They're very immersed in um, founding the Green Party of West Germany. And also in the, um, they're kind of like the nexus point in Germany for the worldwide fight against nuclear missiles. So in this scene, um, what we have is um, um, Manfred Schwartz sitting down to work on the federal program for the new Green Party, which you know, of course, the Green Party in Germany was and is a very powerful force in politics. And these are the people who are doing the difficult work of tr- trying to figure out 
how to bring all these voices together. Now I'm back at the farmhouse, Manfred Schwartz, 32 years old, a man in his prime, and I've got a beer in my hand and a pile of marked up pages on the kitchen table in front of me to craft our new federal program for the Green Party of West Germany. You know, it surprises me to think that, yes, there I was in my youth, and I spent every second working, planning, strategizing, never mind. This was my passion. This was this was our passion. This was the 80s, and I wasn't holed up in a punk bar, bashing my head against the wall to de Totenhosen or the Sex Pistols, or just generally fucking around, as one believes one ought to have done looking back. Youth is wasted on the young, etc. Anyway, all right. It took a sip of beer. Lost gates. Let's go. It was like a potion. You had to get the mix of ingredients right or the thing would explode. First, a dose of feminism to satisfy Freya Fertig and her powerful group Frauen für den Frieden. Because women must be at the heart, Manfred. I can really hear her say this. But wait, the nonviolent pacifists, a cranky group if you ever saw them, they wanted civil disobedience to be at the heart. Gandhi, the power of Satyagraha. Many of the influential citizens' initiatives wanted the fight against nuclear power to be at the heart. So now we've got four minds and four opinions. Or do we have 4,000 minds, 4,000 opinions? I added a small dash of anarchism for the spontis. Those were the spontaneous leftist politicos, the basement lovers, ex-squatters of Frankfurt and Berlin, like me. But hold off now, not too much, or the mix could combust, causing infighting and narcissistic posturing. And I had to keep the Hamburg Red Greens happy, militant anti-capitalists. They joined the Green Party because they saw it as the path to power. They could smell power the way worms can smell rain. They often met in cadres, establishing their line and then voting as a group. Their politics was dogmatically left-wing Marxist stuff. Many supported the Eastern Bloc, though they were too savvy to make this public. Then, on top of this, there were the farmers, the visionaries, the conservative ecologists. Fucking Jesus, this was difficult, I thought. I'd have to start again. But the telephone rang. I picked it up. It was Petra calling from West Berlin. Her conference on radiation victims had ended early. I complained to her that the program was close to impossible, that we were a disorderly rabble. So what, she said, we're still beautiful. We're a fucking mess, I said. A beautiful fucking mess, was what Petra Kelly answered. I would love to hear about how you found out about Petra Kelly, because I had never heard of her until I read the book. Well, that's interesting, Megan. You know, some people feel that she's a very famous and iconic person. And they would almost gasp when I said I was writing a, <clears throat> excuse me, a book about Petra Kelly. And other people, the majority of people don't, don't know who she is or was. So she was very famous at the time. She was very famous in the 80s. And I was a peace activist in Vancouver, uh, working with the End the Arms Race Coalition, which every year would organize this enormous walk for peace. And in 1986, they also put on an enormous um, centennial peace festival, you know, 
1986 being the year of, of Vancouver's, you know, first hundred years. And we had a pretty left-wing city council. And so they said, you get to do this enormous peace festival, which we then went about organizing. We invited 20 world leaders, including John Kenneth Galbraith and two, three Nobel Prize winners. And we also invited Petra Kelly, because at that time she was, of course, the leading figure in the fight against nuclear weapons in, in West Germany and um, really well-known, really charismatic. And she came to Vancouver. And of course, I met her and I heard her speak. And I was pretty, you know, I, I guess my socks were pretty blown off by how she spoke, by her charisma, by her power, by her, um, you know, as it says in the book, her, her the, the um, sort of web-like nature of her politics. She had such a vast way of looking at the world. Our coalition was pretty narrow. We were just like in there for the fight against nuclear weapons. And she was bringing in feminism and she was bringing in Tibet and she was bringing in the patriarchy. And she was showing the connections be- between all of these things. And so I was, I was very moved. And then years later, um, I found out that she had died. And it seemed to me in that instant when I heard about that, like a really, um, like both a tragedy and also a remarkable story. You know, her life makes a remarkable story. She's a bigger, she's a larger than life person. Yeah. And so you met her and many years have passed since that time. And I guess I the question is kind of the origin story of the book, but it did you always have this kind of like maybe an, an inkling that 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 she might become a, a story for you? Or how did it go from a person that you met in in the 80s when you were a peace activist to the book that you wrote? Well, um, I wasn't a writer at that point in the 80s. I was just like a young woman, you know, coming of age and struggling with my nuclear anxiety you know, we have eco-anxiety now, but back then there was nuclear anxiety and, you know, real fear that that we wouldn't have a world to pass on to our children, you know, just as this is we're experiencing the climate fear. And so I wasn't writing. I was just throwing myself a bit like the characters in, in Petra into this fight. And then years passed and I became a young mother. And then I think it's around... Um, 2006, I, I went to Germany and I visited Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. And it was a small independent museum there that had all of the people who had, it had different rooms. It was an odd little museum. And one of the, it had rooms that showcased people who had escaped over the Berlin Wall or through the Iron Curtain. And it was very moving. And one of the rooms was about people who had helped people escape and who had supported the political activities on the other side of the wall. And there was that picture of Petra Kelly leaning against a tree, looking so gorgeous and sexy and sort of boyish. It was the same picture that, the, that, that, that she had sent to us when we organized the Peace Festival in 86. So I guess 20 years have gone by. And, I, and at that moment, now I was a writer and I thought that's a story. And I got that buzz all over my arms. And I just thought that's a story. That's a novel, you know, and her general was there too. There was a picture of the NATO general that she fell in love with you know, the peace activist and the general. And there was a picture of him there too. And so I thought, there it is. There's the story. Of course it took years after that to make it all come together, but that was the, that was the origin. Yeah. 
Was there ever a moment for you where you thought of writing it as as creative nonfiction, or did it always just feel like it had to be historical fiction for you? Yeah, I never wanted to write it as creative nonfiction. Books have been written about Petra Kelly. I wanted to fictionalize because I wanted to explore the things that people don't know. You know, that was what that was what really interested me was, you know, you get to the edge of what you do know, and then you have to make it up. And that was the part that's most fascinating to me is, you know, what what actually happened? Like, why did she, you know, the, the nature of this relationship that she had with the general, the complications, all of that had to be fictionalized because there's really not that much known about what went on between them, you know, in the small hours of the night, you know, when no one was there. And so I got very interested in that, those questions. Yeah, I think that's, I've talked to other um, people who've written historical fiction and there's only so much we can get at uh, through research because people, as you said, they don't write about what happens in the wee hours of the night with their with their lovers in their journals. Maybe they do, but there's something to be said for, for being, able, being able to color outside the lines a little bit. A lot. Yeah. Color outside the lines a lot. I mean, I think that's what fiction is for. And I think that's what, um, yeah, like um, historical fiction can really do that. I mean, I don't really consider Petra historical fiction. I guess it is. But, you know, this fictionalizing of a person who lived is really about that. It's about sort of throwing yourself imaginatively inside that person's skin. And I think that's, I mean, that's the role for fiction. It's also interestingly, um, the role for nonfiction too. I mean, we all have to do that. This it's the sort of um, the power of the imagination is is so important in any form of writing. You know, this the leap that we need to do into somebody else's skin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, on that, I'm I'm curious why you chose uh, Manfred as the the point of view who for this story and why maybe you didn't go with Patrick Kelly or the NATO general. Um, I did write early drafts with more of Petra and with more of the NATO general in them. I mean, just to back up a little bit, the, the, the book often took the form of a play and I w- would write it as a play and it would, I try that for a while. And then I, turned it back into a novel, then I'd write it as a play. So it went back and forth. And I don't know why I just, I was just, um, I sort of hit the end of what I could do um, fictionally. And then I'd switch it over and I say, okay, I've got a good idea. I'll just turn it back into a play. And then I'd work on it for a while like that. And in the course of that, this narrator emerged who was a bit like, um, you know, one of those Peter Schaefer characters in Equus or like um, Salieri and Amadeus who comes to the front and sort of, takes over the action and the action is partly in his mind, what he remembers and partly what, what the narrative just demands on the stage. So when I switched it back into being a novel, um, I kept that and, and I, um, I liked it. It was, it's, it sat well on the page and I felt like I could progress because a lot of it is, you know, you read something over and it seems limp. And so you put it away because you can't stand it. But if something kind of sits well on the page, you can just proceed, right? So I felt like, okay, well, I get this. This is how this story gets told. So on a kind of um, intuitive, just working on the page level, it was working. It was only much later that I realized that I was so glad I told it from Manfred's point of view because 
his narrative intersects with Petra and Emile's narrative. And his narrative becomes increasingly important in the second half of the book. And his narrative actually is what takes us up to the present. And his narrative is what accumulates into the present climate crisis. So he became um, sort of unwittingly, this is sort of how, I mean, as you know, how fiction works is, you know, you do something and, and you try it and it works on the page. So you keep doing it. And then only years later, do you realize, wow, that really serves a purpose, a narrative purpose in this book. So that's sort of what, what Manfred did for me. Yeah. It's funny in your reading and you're describing Manfred being at at the farmhouse and that place was so vivid in my mind, like even having you read it again, I could, I have this picture of what that place looks like. It was, it really came to life for me. Oh, that's so nice. Well, I did think about that, you know, I thought about messy houses from my, you know, from my twenties or early thirties, you know, the shoes everywhere, like, you know, the front, the front area is just full of shoes. You can never clear the, you know, I don't know how people can come to a house and then leave without their shoes, but shoes would accumulate, you know? So yeah, I thought about that. I enjoyed being um, a man for the period of time that I was inside his narrative voice and drinking the beer. I don't really drink beer, but his drinking the beer and walking around in Birkenstocks and, you know, sort of being this bearded um, uh, intellectual, German intellectual. I, I really enjoyed uh, being him. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because there was a lot of really interesting themes that came up in the book, but something that I was really interested in was the conversation about what Germany was and what it meant to be German in the wake of the Holocaust and after World War II. I just found that so interesting, but especially given, I think, maybe given what we're going through in Canada right now um, with the genocide of Indigenous people and residential schools, I wondered why that in particular was so interesting for you to explore in the book. There's such a parallel. It's so, um, yeah, it just feels really pertinent right now, you know, and, and one of the parallels. So, so just to um, kind of dive headlong into this, I mean, post-war Germany went through successive layers of recognition of what had happened in their country and uncoverings, I guess you could call them. And there was a kind of stultification just immediately after the war. Some writers bored through it, but a lot of other people just felt that the that the systems, the German systems had just been sort of built up on the uh, remaining edifice, uh, post-war edifice, and that nothing had really changed. And so then when this new generation came along, and, you know, I think people have said, you know, a lot of people have uh, problems with their parents, but not most people don't have parents that were Nazis, you know? And so these, these young people really became so militant. I mean, in the 60s, it was an age of militancy, but the the militancy of Germany of that particular generation was so fueled by that anger for what their parents had done. This, what did you do in the war, daddy? What did you do in the war, mommy? You know, and that need to draw that up into the light. So I was interested in that. I find that very interesting. And now what we're going through in Canada, it does have so many parallels you know uh, I mean one big one is people would say after the war in Germany they'd say we didn't know we didn't know and I mean I think that for many of us growing up in British Columbia with residential schools or all across Canada 
you like I for for myself at least I go back over my old memories of um of the indigenous people around me where were they you know where and and I think what did I know about residential schools there was there was an awakening around residential schools that started like in the I guess in the early 90s and before that there was there was just so much really grotesque suppression of this knowledge among white people, obviously not among indigenous people, but among white people. And that's part of our legacy. And it's part of our shame, right? Part of our cultural shame. And we need to examine it as part of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just interesting that whole, that shaping of identity, because it really does seem particularly in the book that that there was this kind of line drawn, this fracture, and there was what it meant to be German before and what it meant to be German after. And it does, it. I mean, it, it does feel similar because I remember my mom um, said to me when the, the children were found in Kamloops, she said, you know, I don't know what it means to be Canadian anymore. And I just thought that was such an in- interesting but also profound thing to say because I think it speaks to what a lot of people are are feeling mm-hmm. who maybe are discovering or discovering is the wrong word but are are hearing of these things for the first time it it does feel like a, a fracture and now we have to figure out what it looks like going forward mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean in Germany they talk about you know the luckiness of being born too late Right. I mean, the people would feel that they were lucky that they hadn't been born into the Nazi era because they didn't live through those genocides and those um, cultural choices that 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 tore those people apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it also seemed, you know, the the legacy of trauma really comes up in the book too, because in the same way that there's that that fracture in German identity, it seemed like there was also this kind of feeling from older Germans that the the newer the younger generations would never quite understand, and I mean that plays out a little bit with uh, the NATO general and Petra and their relationship, and it's probably I think what binds. Uh, the NATO general to his wife as well too they have that commonality but it seems like that that before and after really shaped a lot of the relationships in the book too it really did I mean um the NATO general Emil Gerhard I changed his name for the book is really in love with his wife and he's in love with Petra and they both represent very different things for him I mean his wife represents a kind of world of shadow that he can exist in without ever talking. This is something I feel like I'm familiar with almost in, on a collective unconscious level. You know, this idea that you can share so much if you just don't talk about it. And so that's the, that's the world that he and his wife inhabit. She went through all sorts of terrible things during the war. He went through all sorts of things during the war. He was more of a perpetrator. She was more of a victim. But together they form this complicity of silence. Whereas with Petra, her whole raison d'etre is to pull it up, to to expose it. She's that person that 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 I that I met in Vancouver. She's the uh, weaver of the web of rationality and, and explanation. So when he gets involved with her, he's very drawn to that. He thinks, you know, he's going for green renewal. He's going for this complete renewal of his character. 
through this young person, you know, no, he's also an older man who's attracted to a younger woman. I mean, that's sort of a theme of, you know, I get to live again, but with him, he also gets to relive. And I think, I think he's picturing on an unconscious or semi-conscious level that he's going to expiate some of this junk that's stuck in him. This, 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 sort of it's like a clot, a criminal clot in his psyche, and that he's going to be able to get this out. And that's his huge mistake because um, that's, and that be really forms a lot of what the story is about this older man who wants so badly to be a good person, this younger woman who wants so badly for him to be a good person. And then what goes wrong? And I was hoping it would be a bit of a Petri dish for, you know, what goes wrong when we try to change the world, what goes wrong when we, um, you know, human frailty gets in the way of our brilliant intentions. Yeah. Were there characters in the book you, you mentioned that you really enjoyed being Manfred while you were writing the book? Were there were there characters that were harder for you to connect with as you were writing them? Well, the general was in some ways hard to connect to at times. I had to um, think about him a lot. I had to take him through a narrative where he changes a lot. And so I had to kind of follow, I had different file cards with different colors on them. And I had to kind of follow his narrative and think, oh my God, he changes. Then, then this thing happens to him. And then he's, you know, he alters and he doesn't alter, always alter for the good. So I was interested in that. Um, I had to do a lot of research to try to understand him as a general, you know, as a German general. And this whole idea, this post-war idea of inner leadership, that the that the German military was going to, um, you know, people were positing that they needed a new form of military in West Germany and that they never wanted to sort of follow routinely into battle without questioning their own consciences. So they had this whole thing, inner leadership, where they were supposed to be able to um, address their own hearts somewhere in the equation of being a soldier, which, of course, is an incredibly complex complex um, idea. And so he was trying to do that in the book. That's one of his things that he's trying to do. He's trying to think with his heart, as Petra Kelly called it, think with his heart. And that's really one of the big questions of the book. Can he, can he think with his heart and what gets in the way of that? But you know, another character was hard was Petra. I found Petra very hard because um, when I went and interviewed some people in, in Germany and, you know, some people who'd worked with her, she was, she created a lot of waves of complication around her. She was known to be, you know, I mean, I don't want to sort of glibly use the word narcissistic, but she was egotistical, strong-willed, anxious, but she was also, and she created, and she had a star, you know, she was a rising star and she spoke like a star and acted like a star and presented like a star. So she created, you know, waves of jealousy, but at the same time, she was incredibly generous. She was, she never forgot the people on the other side of the wall. She would bring them presents. She would you know, she would in- include them in all her speeches. She never forgot about the people of Tibet in all of her speeches. She was, so she was this really complex mix. She was the kind of person you might not want to sit and have a really long dinner with 
because she could sometimes monopolize the conversation, get going, forget about the forget about the group dynamics. So she was the opposite of Elizabeth Bennett, let's say. She wasn't ironically watching people and figuring out what was going on in a room. She was charging into that room and charging through that room. And so sometimes she was really hard to write. Sometimes I didn't like her. But ultimately, I fell in love with her like everybody else. You just mentioned doing interviews to get to know a little bit about Petra and having to research uh, a bit about what it means to be a general and going to Checkpoint Charlie. And I would imagine there was so much other research that you had to do. I I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the research and that process for this book. Yeah, it was um, it was complicated. I'd write. I mean, what I would do with research is I would. get enough under my belt that I could start. There's a kind of process where as you're researching, you can suddenly feel it start to change and you want to write. And so when that would happen, I would write and I would write, you know, 50, 60 pages or something like that. And then I'd realize, oh, it's getting thin. I don't really understand these things. And then I'd have to go back. And I did that many times, you know, um, kind of accumulating some kind of sense of a draft and then, but then having it, be way too thin or there was so much just to know about the period, what was happening politically at the period. Um, but I also had to um, understand the dynamics of what was going on in the Green Party. So I I interviewed um, some of her old friends. I went to Germany. I um, went to Berlin. I, I met some of her um, colleagues and talked to them at length. And they were really generous with their ideas and their thoughts. And somewhere along the line, when I was in Germany, my brother, who lived in Germany, and his and his partner, his wife, Marie, um, said to me, "Look, if you're doing this research on um, politics in Germany, in West Germany, you've got to left wing politics. You've got to talk to this guy Klaus Trapman." So I got in touch with him. I said, "Why do I have to talk to Klaus Trapman? You just you just do trust us. Trust us. You've got to talk to Klaus Trapman." So we decided to meet outside of this garden where he, uh, this beautiful communal garden that was kind of in this area that had sort of been off limits before the wall fell. And I got off the U-Bahn and I, and I walked towards him and he's standing at the gate, the garden gate. And he looked up and he was bearded and he was wearing Birkenstocks and he was just, it was like Manfred was waiting for me. My character, my main character was just waiting for me. And he, you know, he's the same height, the same burliness. And we went into his, um, his uh, garden allotment. He showed me all around and then he opened a bottle of wine. And that afternoon, he just walked me through left wing West German politics, you know, the sixties, the 70s, the 80s, because he was the kind of person who, when he tells his personal history, it's a political history at the same time. And so it was just the most marvelous afternoon. And I was taking notes and I was recording it. And he was just tremendously helpful to my understanding of the politics that, that, that make up Manfred's background and that led to so, led to, uh, the ins and outs and twists that led to the formation of the Greens. How interesting that you you stumbled upon Manfred. I know. It was so strange. That happens sometimes. That happens sometimes with books where you suddenly realize, wow, I'm walking into my fiction. It's yeah. so strange and so fascinating in these overlapping worlds. And you do sort of feel like, oh, I imagined that. 
but then you realize, no, of course I didn't imagine that it's, it's, it exists, you know, but you've kind of pushed up against it enough that, that, that you get this lucky moment where it feels like what you've imagined is, is actually existing. Yeah. I wanted to, um, in your, in your intro, you mentioned how growing up in Horseshoe Bay was important to you. And I wondered how, where you grew up, impacted how you wrote about the setting for this book and how you saw Germany and and West Germany uh how that may have changed how you saw it or if you brought different details in because of where you grew up that's such an interesting question I don't think that Horseshoe Bay has that much to do with Berlin (laughs) I think that's I think that's too big a leap but my grand a father was German and he came over and he founded a idealistic community after the first world war and of um, young, young men. And um, it fell apart. And then he, he and his wife who was American Canadian got married. And then they also started a kind of idealistic marriage where they were going to create art and also grow um they had an apple orchard that became a cherry orchard. And so I grew up with a lot of these ideas and questions about, about Germany and being German, you know, German, my mother, my mother grew up in the, you know, she was a little girl during the second world war. This is all in her book, Wanda, which she wrote just before she died. She died just six weeks ago, but she grew up in the shadow of the war. It was terrible. Um, in to be German in as a little girl during the Second World War in um, the very prejudiced Okanagan Valley. Her house was searched. They um, she was you know teased at school pretty mercilessly. So, so I think I always had a kind of shadow on my back about being um, being part German and wanting to explore that. You know, and I think it's also what what drew my brother to Germany, and then you know he became a translator in Germany, and and then. And then drew me to visit him and then drew me back into this story. So there's a lot of connections that I think have to do with my own, my own background. You know, I think we, we sort of write what we know and what we don't know at the same time. And I would say like in answer to your question as well, the very fact that there's such a huge gap between my you know little house and my little post and beam house in Horseshoe Bay and Berlin or Bonn, you know, is kind of what intrigues you to write something. So you're always kind of writing into, you know, I was thinking about this before the interview, you, you're kind of writing into what you do know and what you don't know. At the same time, you're being, you write into what you don't know, and then you use what you do know to, to make the connections and to find the similarities. So no, I've never been a NATO general, but I have felt desires for renewal. I felt the need to remake myself at times. I felt drawn to something and frightened of it at the same time. So you find those connections. So that's, I think, what I was doing with the book. Thanks so much to Shana for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon book prizes, please visit our website bcyukonbookprizes.com. 
You can also, of course, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about upcoming events and other great details about our winners and finalists. I'll be taking the next two Saturdays off for the holidays, but when we're back on January 8th, you'll hear my interview with Billy Ray Belcourt. Billy Ray's book, A History of My Brief Body, won the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and was shortlisted for the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast and happy holidays from all of us at the BC and Yukon Book Prizes.